Hello and welcome to Monocle 24's The Urbanist, the show all about the cities we live in. I'm Andrew Tuck. Coming up on today's programme. How can we amplify the role of the cultural sector, the role of artists in the cities and make sure that the stories of the people who live there are heard? How do you build a community with culture at its core? How do you ensure that the same community remains livable for its pioneering residents? On today's show, we explore a familiar theme of regeneration versus gentrification through the lens of a recent documentary on the cities of Oakland, California and Saint-Denis in Paris. We also look at how this year's European capital of culture, Rijeka, is fighting back against a tumultuous 2020 to revitalise the city on the Adriatic coast. All that and much more right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. The artist's role in a city is a delicate one. Does a merry group of troubadours dancing their way into your quiet neighbourhood signal cultural enrichment or a descent into gentrification? Unfortunately, it seems the latter is often the case. Well, a newly released documentary entitled Empowering Culture in Our Cities aims to flip this gentrification narrative on its head. The film follows a delegation from Saint-Denis, France, on a visit to Oakland, California, and vice versa. Both parties meet with local residents, doing their part to make artists an integral part of the solution when it comes to improving our cities. Well, I'm joined now by two of the delegates, Juliette Donadeux, the cultural attaché for the French Embassy in San Francisco, and Emily Moreau, the Director of Social Studies at Paris Urbanism Agency. They made the trip across the Atlantic and are here to discuss some of the main takeaways from the journey. Juliet, just starting with you, what's your role in this project and why were you interested in comparing these two neighbourhoods? I'm Juliet, I'm the uh, cultural attaché. So I'm the head of the cultural services of the French embassy in San Francisco. This project, you know, Oakland Sandy Corporation, started a year ago in 2019. And I think the starting point is a shared conviction, is making the city is a cultural act and that we must re-engage artists and cultural institutions in urban development. What we wanted is like, I've been here for three years and we looked at the different, what happened here in the Bay Area and in Auckland and I've been living for like more than 10 years really close to Saint-Denis in the north of Paris. And yes, both cities, Auckland and Saint-Denis, are incredibly diverse and are replaced with a lot of history. And they face very similar challenges. And we really think at the cultural services that it was time to look at things a bit differently, to cross the bridge here, to cross the peripheric in France, and to point the spotlights and give voices to the artists and cultural institutions who make the changes here and there. And just before I bring in Emily, just tell me, you are the cultural attaché. One of the ambitions of this film, obviously, is to show that you shouldn't always be scared of artists arriving in your neighbourhood. They're not always a sign of gentrification that's going to push everybody out. It can be for the common good as well. Was that something you were concerned about, that there was this move in the, the narrative that people were beginning to think that, oh my God, artists are moving in, this is going to be the end of my neighbourhood? The main point was to bring together very different perspectives and to start a dialogue 
between artists, urbanists, local authorities, academics, and you know, to bring around the table the artists with the people who are making the city. And to start this dialogue about, okay, the consequences, the gentrification process, and to confront ideas. And I think that's exactly what happened between, you know, the two groups, the American and the French one, is to realize that it was complex. Making cities is complex. And what does it mean to bring artists? And how can we amplify the role of the cultural sector, the role of artists in the cities, and make sure that the stories of the people who live there are heard? And I think that was one of the main points. I think we need to bring people together and I think the artists and the cultural institution are a key role in this. I mean, let's bring you in now. You're an urban planner and you were part of the delegations. You got to see what was happening in San Francisco and you brought the American team back to Paris. How did you get involved in the project and what things surprised you when you made the crossover to see what was going on in Oakland? Yeah, thank you, um, Emily. I'm from the uh, Place Planning and Urban Agency. I'm the director of social studies there. I was very much interested in the project because, yeah, we have the same issues here in Greater Paris, in Saint-Denis, and in Auckland and San Francisco. And what surprised me the most, I guess, was the way we name things in the two cities, whereas we have the same issues. We name things sometimes very differently and sometimes in a very close way from the similarities and from the differences, uh, how we can learn about our own system, our own representation. We often heard, you know, in uh, Oakland, the word community, a word we do not use in France, actually. This teaches us about our practices, our own processes. Uh, from the French point of view, I think, is that question how we can more involve the people in the project how we can more recognize the diverse cultural identities. It was a one thing that interested me a lot in the project. And tell me, Emily, for outsiders, often these neighborhoods are places that you don't regularly visit. And sometimes for other people in the city, they have some negative connotations about what goes on there, what kind of neighborhoods they were like. Did you see that similarity as well between the two places that you know, outsiders misunderstood them in a way? Yeah, you're right. It is uh, something the two cities have in common, some kind of a negative connotation because they are both close to very uh, attractive urban centers that are Paris and San Francisco and that they've been seen for a long time as the banlieue, as we say in France, of those big centers, like in the case of Saint-Denis, industrial past, huge social challenges, and employment, etc. But beyond this very limited connotation, those two cities have also a strong identity, many assets. They both concentrate plenty of innovative cultural players, many different experimental projects. And what we can say about those places, that they are both places of urban innovation right now, places that are actually moving within those two bigger metropolises. There are the places where things happen and where important urban projects are in progress. This is why there is a big challenge for those two cities in the future. Remain innovative, maintain their creative places, their communities, diversity, 
and the initiatives highlighted by the Oakland Sandini project, cooperation project, form a kind of a roadmap about how making this happen. Julia, I know that you want this to be a continuing collaboration, but the pandemic has also not helped things. How do you see this relationship developing over the years to come? I think it's the beginning. And uh, even if you know, the borders remain closed, we really need to enlarge the conversation and continue this dialogue. So the next step is a collective publication. So we just finalized it. And actually, we sent it to the printer this morning. So we put all the knowledge and all the different innovation and uh, projects that we have seen in this publication. And we will start to invite more and more communities from Oakland and from Sandy, but not only. You know, we realize it's a global challenge. And I think we need to learn from each other. And we need to learn from other cities. And so what we're going to do in the next coming weeks and months is to present the project, to share it with other cities, such as Chicago. We are invited to the National Humanities Conference in November. We are launching with our key partner, the California Humanities, online conversation, and hopefully we will do physically very soon when we, it will be possible. So it's the beginning. And I think what we realized here is the arts communities realize that they are not alone and that we are connecting them from here and from there and sharing the knowledge and putting around the table the local authorities, the urban agencies, and the real estate developers to think how we can do and make cities a bit differently. And yes, we will continue. And finally, Emily, for you, what do you hope you will get out of this project in the months ahead? And what other kind of collaborations would you like to see? I guess, you know, in the time we're living, I think this kind of project is uh, very important for cities to exchange together, especially about how to respond to such a health and social crisis that will have a, a big effect on the cultural sector and the, the artists. The cities we are talking about are actually the ones that are suffering the most from the, this crisis uh, right now especially in the creative Paris, Saint-Denis, for example, is uh, the city that suffered the most from the COVID-19 uh, crisis. So I think beyond this project, the collaboration between this city is a big challenge to further the project and create the tools to develop collective like city processes that are very important in the time we're living. Well, the documentary is called Empowering Culture in Our Cities. And Juliet, perhaps you could just tell listeners, how is it possible for them to view this film? The film is on the website, the uh, Auckland Sydney website. So it's www.aucklandsydney.org. And the publication, the collective publication, will be available on the website in October. So I think everything will be available and open to all. My thanks to Juliet Donadeu and Emily Moreau there. You can find out more about the most recent project from the Oakland Saint-Denis Partnership, a new take on the artist residency called Villa San Francisco at villasanfrancisco.org. Up next, we assess how event cancellations have hit the 2020 European capital of culture. This is The Urbanist. Cultural events have been taking hits all over the world recently, and they are nowhere near recovering yet. 
But for the Croatian city of Rijeka, the coronavirus-enforced cancellations have been particularly heartbreaking. The start of a new decade was also meant to mark its year as a European capital of culture. But Rijeka 2020 was about more than just an international arts jamboree. It was a chance to rebrand and reinvigorate a city which has gone through hard times since Croatia's independence almost 30 years ago. But as Guy Delaney reports from Rijeka, a reshaped capital of culture has risen from the rubble. It's a sweltering hot summer's day in Rijeka, and the residents of this old port city are seeking the shade of cafes like this along the Corso, the main pedestrian drag within sight of the sea. But there's something missing: all the foreign artists who should have been taking part for Rijeka 2020 and the events marking the city's year as European capital of culture. Ah, we lost a lot. We must reorganize the whole project. Less than half of all projects which we originally prepared. Vojko Obersnel has been Rijeka's mayor for the past 20 years. The hotels are not full. The restaurants are not full. So it's it's really big big damage in economical aspects, but maybe more in that visibility of the city. Were you relying on Rijeka 2020 to try and? Shift the focus of the economy a bit as well. The project will be the finally end of post-industrial transition. Like in many other cities, such old type of industry disappeared. This project can be initiation of some new kind of industry. Rijeka's year as European capital of culture began with a bang at the city's main port in February. They called it Opera Industriale, a celebration of Rijeka's industrial, artistic, and above all, non-conformist spirit. It should have been the overture to a cornucopia of cultural events, which would bring the city some much-needed international attention. Nobody counted on coronavirus ripping to shreds a program which had been years in the making. Only one month after a big opening, it was pretty sh- shocking. Ivan Shara is the head of the city's culture department, and he's been instrumental in relaunching Rijeka 2020 since Croatia's lockdown lifted. First shock was financial shock. The second shock was: Is it possible to reshape it? We cancelled all complex international cooperations because of that not not travelling situation. A really interesting question for people who aren't familiar with Rijeka is why Rijeka needs a capital of culture, yeah, and what it means to the people here. The first thing that Rijeka always had. Pretty powerful, and from city government perspective, pretty expensive and big uh, cultural scene, uh, cultural institution structure. But no one outside Rijeka, in Croatia, on in former uh, Yugoslavia, on in region, didn't perceive Rijeka as city of culture. And at the same time, uh, Rijeka passed through really hard transition because Rijeka was uh, a working class hero city with. Uh, 40,000 people uh, working in 
heavy industry and all that industries broke during the homeland war and, 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 and years after and Rijeka really needs some boost some some nitro moment to reshape the image to reshape identity and to promote uh, a cultural scene which is existing but not outside uh, uh, the city limits but a new version of Rijeka 2020 is rising from the rubble The workmen here are scrambling to get what's known as the children's house ready for its expected opening in September. This building used to be part of a sugar factory and for the past 30 years it's been derelict. Now this entire complex is being revived as cultural institutions for the people of Rijeka. So there's a library, uh, there's a city museum, but this place, the children's house, is going to be one big cultural centre entirely for the younger people of the city. The whole project is the biggest uh, cultural infrastructure projects in uh, Croatia. Our cultural institutions will find new home in those buildings. Irena Kregar-Shegota took over as Rijeka 2020's chief executive in June with a mission to reshape the capital of culture. The important thing is that we are really trying and we will try till the end to do as much as we can. So to take, to do the most in the present circumstances. The circumstances have changed, physical circumstances, because artists cannot join us, uh, foreign groups cannot join us. So the focus is now on grassroots events. Here in the clifftop town of Bersech, just up the coast from Rijeka, a local choir is heralding the installation of a sculpture by the Danish artist Sophie Torsen. It's part of a programme called Langomare Art. Irena says it draws the surrounding communities into the Rijeka 2020 experience. Of course we are relying a lot on local cultural and artistic scene. But that does not mean that there is that the uh, international dimension of the project has been completely lost. So when you look back on Rijeka 2020 in five years, ten years, do you think you'll be able to either A, laugh about it then, or B, say, despite being given lemons, we made lemonade? I think we've done a lot, and I think that in five years' time people will look back and be proud. There's no hiding the disappointment among members of the local cultural scene that they're missing out on interactions with international artists. But there's also determination to make the best of the situation. I'm Eva Mochibo. I've been a singer for 22 years now. I think that uh, people, artists from Rijeka, are, are kind of stubborn and they don't let anything get in their way so I think that maybe some beautiful uh, songs and books and uh, paintings uh, will come from this uh, really hard period and from this disappointment we know that in kind of hard times uh, artists usually have the inspiration and, and maybe some of those pieces will be part of European legacy not only creation. So the new look Rijeka 2020 has a more local feel, but there should still be long-term benefits. Zoran Medved worked on producing the music for the opening event, and he says that despite the coronavirus-induced calamities, there are sound reasons to be hopeful about the city's cultural future. I'm optimistic mostly because so many 
so many young people were involved. They started a company, employed like 70 mostly young people from uh, Rijeka and all over the Croatia. There was that accumulation of, of this momentum of, of everybody working together for this thing and I think that something good, good will, not in short term, but in long term will, will come from that. Capitals of culture tend to face challenges as they renegotiate their relationship with the arts. Rijeka has just run into a bigger obstacle than anyone's previously had to negotiate. But perhaps in the end, the reimagined project will turn out to be exactly what it needs. For Monocle in Rijeka, I'm Guy Delaunay. Finally, to round out our show, well, we're going to go from talking culture to cultural shifts. If the skyscrapers, civic buildings and city halls built in the 20th century were defined by their use of steel, concrete and glass, then the 21st century looks to be one where they're more defined by mass timber construction. Yes, office buildings, opera houses and even bridges made from timber will, touch wood, be the norm in the coming years. To give you the lowdown on the rise of this new way of building, Here's Monocle's Nick Manise. Got wood? Well, the world's leading architects should, as a result of some governments mandating the use of timber in federal buildings and some cities proposing wooden bridges as replacements for decaying steel infrastructure. For proof, First, look to France, where earlier this year the government announced their intentions to require all new public buildings in the country to be constructed with at least 50% wood. This, inspired by Paris's decision to build mid-rise apartment blocks out of timber to house athletes at their 2024 Olympic Games. Next, let's turn our gaze to Washington State in the US, where plans to rebuild the West Seattle Bridge, a now closed traffic artery, with a mass timber and steel hybrid construction, have been mooted. Building both apartment blocks and major works of civic infrastructure out of wood has been made possible by cross-laminated timber, a technology that was first developed in the early 1990s and has finally improved to a point that makes such grand projects possible. In layman's terms, cross-laminated timber is composed of slats of wood glued together and laminated to form long structural members like columns or beams that can then be used to build, well, anything. But why the sudden obsession with timber from the likes of French President Emmanuel Macron and the city of Seattle? For an explanation, we turn to Matthias Alt, an architect who specialises in the design of mass timber buildings and whose practice, B plus H, submitted the aforementioned West Seattle bridge design. As far as the advantages or the benefits of mass timber goes, you can look at it quantitatively and qualitatively. If I look at it in terms of overall competition and with a quantitative angle, there is a cost and schedule advantage. That advantage of cost is not because there's a material cost equation that would suggest that it's cheaper. It's quite the opposite. Wood products are more expensive. However, the cost comes down due to a much more compressed construction schedule for a six, seven-story building, I can shave off around six months of construction time due to the fact that all of those elements and components are prefabricated. 
So I can build faster, I can occupy sooner. It is lightweight compared to concrete and steel and therefore advantageous. It has fewer finishes, so that leads to overall reduced savings due to finish savings. And also your construction schedule will be expedited because you don't have typically suspended ceilings, for example. And the brief application, the design for manufacture and assembly allows for less on-site labor, less labor volatility that comes with that, and less risk due to labor shortages. On the qualitative side, there are aspects of carbon footprint, you know, users and tenants value ownership of a reduced carbon footprint, of course, that goes together with the environmental impact. So there's a clear market position as a positive contributor to the environment. Future forward, our societies in all parts of the world need to find ways and how to build more sustainably and resiliently. And by that, I mean using products and materials that are part of a closed loop circular economy where things can be taken out and put back in and trees as organic natural materials that sequester carbon and release it in phases over time and must timber technology that can be used to elongate that phased release into the environment is a beautiful example of a closed loop carbon cycle. From this quick breakdown, we can see why governments and cities are so eager to mandate its use. And with all new public sector buildings in the European Union now required to be built to nearly zero energy standards, with its good environmental resume, it seems only natural that timber construction could feature even more heavily and be written into law more broadly. So what does this mean for us, the people who will inhabit the buildings? Recent studies have found that structures made from glass and steel can seem unwelcoming and make people feel isolated. Wood, by comparison, with its fine grains and intricate knots, brings a human scale to buildings, making our homes and offices, and bridges too, more inviting, and overall creating places that are better for our health. There's the entire aspect of biophilia, but this is just to say that since the beginning, we have been living in nature, and the human body has adapted to those natural systems. We have an affinity, a natural affinity to all things natural. Today, when we see natural materials, we automatically feel good because we are wired to that natural environment. And the term that is used for this is biophilia and organic forms and wood surfaces positively affect our health. And this is scientifically substantiated. Exposure to wood reduces the release of stress hormones. So one of those hormones is called, it's a protein, it's called oxyhemoglobin. And it is measured in the prefrontal cortices of your brain. And reducing those releases in your brain by either sight of wood or touch of wood has significant impact on your overall health and well-being. So it seems the spread and mandating of large-scale timber projects brings with it not just financially savvy developments with green credentials, but a beneficial boost to our mental and physical health too. With this in mind, here's hoping more countries follow the likes of France and cities, Seattle. Timber towers have the potential to soothe our urban lives, and this can only be a good thing. Our thanks to Monocle's Nick Manise for that report. 
Well, that's all for this edition of The Urbanist. Today's episode was produced by Carlotta Ribello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. To play you out of this week's episode, well, here's Eddie Floyd with Knock on Wood. Thank you for listening, city lovers. I don't-